Welcome to Fucking Cancelled, a podcast about what the left is like, what to do about it, and what it'll be like once we've done it. In today's episode, we take a look at Black American English as a case study to consider the differences between identitarianism and identity politics. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. Welcome back to Fucking Cancelled. We got a cool episode for you today. Yeah, it's something that Jay and I have been talking about a lot, and we thought we'd finally make an episode about it. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, this episode is about what is called Black American English. Or it is, I think, more commonly known as AAVE. Mm-hmm. Um, linguist John McWhorter calls it Black English. Mm-hmm. That's right, right? Yeah. And I kind of, I, I understand not wanting to use AAVE because it's... Kind of clunky. It's kind of clunky. It's a bit of a mouthful. I hate acronyms. But also, I feel like Black English isn't exactly correct, if I may be so bold as to <laughs> challenge famous linguist John McWhorter, um, just because I think Black American English is a lot more accurate because it is definitely an American dialect. Yeah. Um, so let's just take a second to talk about what Black American English is before we get into everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, in the United States, there's a dialect of English. Um Possibly you could say it's a collection of dialects, but I think it's it's accurate to say it's a dialect um, called Black American English or African American Vernacular English. And yeah. um, it is the, the style of English that is spoken by a large number of people, most of whom are African American, mm-hmm. um, but not all of whom are African American. Yes. There are people who speak Black American English as their first language mm-hmm. who are not Black. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, of course, many... Black people in the United States, both um, descendants of slavery and also immigrants from Africa or the Caribbean who don't speak uh, Black American English yeah. who or who speak more standard dialects of English as their uh, first variety of English. Yeah. And also, you know, globally, people who are racialized as Black do not just immediately and naturally speak Black American English. Big if true. Because <laughs> they're not Americans. Yeah. Um, so... This is a dialect. And so basically for people who are listening who are not language nerds, Jay's a bit of a language nerd. I, I would say I'm less so, but I dabble. Let's say I dabble. You dabble. Because I definitely have listened to a lot of Lexicon Valley, which is the John McWhorter podcast. I was just talking about John McWhorter. He's a linguist. Um, but basically, um, you know, a dialect is kind of like when a language branches off, right? And it's still, it's still like intelligible for the most part, to people who speak the same language but a different dialect. Mm -hmm. Um, But it branches off enough that it has, like, distinct internal grammatical rules, expressions, so that it may be intelligible but not, like, fully intelligible, and there can be, like, communication breakdowns because of the differences in the dialects. Yeah, and, I mean, it's always fraught uh, what is a a dialect versus a language, and it's often a very, very political issue, you Mm -hmm. know? There are countries that are, like, neighboring countries who speak literally the same language but will, like, swear up and down that they speak, like, completely different languages because they don't like each other. Right. Um, And 
you know, there's also like dialects. There, there are like two countries that have like that just speak different dialects of the same language, but um, they're really treated as though they're separate, um, and and vice versa. Um, there's like a famous saying that a language is just like a dialect with an army and a navy, mm, um, which interesting. in in the case of Europe is like often true. Um, but yeah, so th- the point of all that is just to say that. Um, languages constantly split, shift, um, join together, like change. It's change. They're in this constant state of like drift, right? Um, and they evolve, you know, but they don't evolve like species they, of animals. They evolve more like bacteria who can like share genes with mm. each other, you know? Interesting. Um, but yeah, so you have these kind of like gene pools of language, you know? Um, and so sometimes it can be hard to draw borders around them yeah. um, and whatever. Yeah, so it's a very political issue. But being said um it it is often possible to identify you know different sort of varieties of a language and give them names and yeah. that is definitely um something that over particularly like kind of like more recently ish has been applied to black american english which for a long time due to very intense racism directed towards black americans was considered to be just sort of like substandard dialect uh, substandard like slang you know yes. spoken by people who were too like dim-witted to understand like normal English. Yeah. Um, and then like when that like really intense racism started to abate, um, linguists were like, oh wait, this is like literally its own form of English with its own internal grammatical rules and so on. Yeah. And I think that this is not widely understood still. Like linguists, people who study language and who are like language nerds understand this. It's been totally established. But I think the general population most people are not linguists and they don't understand this. And due to this like history of racism that you're talking about, I think a lot of people, even people who are not in like trying to be racist about it, don't actually understand that it's a dialect. Yeah. And I think that people who are like, who consider themselves like anti-racist and think about this, but don't really understand how like dialects and languages work often might assume that black Americans are talking that way to sort of be cool or something, you know? So it's like, it's all slang. And like, if they're, if they're conjugating a verb differently than like a standard English speaker would, it's because they're trying to like stand out or something like that. Yeah. And so for people who aren't language nerds again, because I just feel like this might be a bit opaque or like hard to understand for people who are not, who don't study languages, I really recommend listening to Lexicon Valley in general. It's a great podcast. It's really interesting. Even if this is not like a main area of interest for you, I think it's like really engaging and interesting. Um, And John McWhorter has episodes on Black American English. So Mm -hmm. you can like check that out and actually listen to more specifics about what we're talking about here from someone who's actually like a linguist and can talk about it more clearly than we can. But basically like what it means is that like people are literally following different grammatical rules and grammatical rules are like the things about like conjugating verbs and stuff like this. Right. Mm -hmm. And so there's different like verb tenses in black American English that do not exist in like the standard American English dialect. And so, um, very often like people who, who devalue black American English will see it as a sign of ignorance. They will see it as a sign of somebody not being able to speak English correctly. Mm-hmm. When in fact, what is going on is that they don't speak the dialect that they're listening to. Exactly. And so they are actually ignorant in this situation because they are actually hearing a different dialect that they don't understand and couldn't correctly speak. And because it doesn't sound like their own dialect, they're just assuming that the person is speaking their dialect incorrectly. Totally. And this is also one of the reasons for the like very cringe phenomenon of 
like white people or non-black people sort of like trying to put on an AAVE kind of accent or whatever and just like failing really badly because what they're doing is they're just fucking up normal English um, instead of speaking black English correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, And maybe I don't want to call it normal English. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm being very like... uh, we can call it the standard, the standard, the variety. standard American dialect, yeah. Um, because yeah, for people whose like native dialect is Black American English, like that's normal English. Yeah, yeah of them. course, of course. Yeah, and so there's a bunch of examples of this, um, and like I think a lot of people don't realize this about Black American English, um, but yeah, it has its own um, grammatical rules. Uh, some of which, well, there's there's like a bunch of them, but. Um, some interesting ones have to do with verb tenses and how you conjugate verbs. And okay, so I'm just going to like sort of briefly explain what conjugating a verb is because yeah. if you have never like learned a second language, you probably don't know that you're conjugating verbs because um, usually you learn that term when you're learning another language yeah. and you have to be like, oh my God, like verbs are so complicated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so in English, conjugating a verb is like, um, I go, you go, he goes you know, they go, whatever. So like the fact that you have to go goes instead of go, like for he is an example of conjugation. Right. Um, or saying like, I will go is another example of conjugation. So you're trying to say, I'm going to do it in the future. You say, I will go or I'm going to go. I went. And then I went. Which is, that's very different. Yeah, exactly. So the, that's all the verb um, to go. That's yeah. what that verb is called. But depending on who's doing it and when you're doing it, it changes. The, the word changes. Yeah. So that's conjugation. Right? Yeah. Um, and if you've ever like learned Spanish or French or whatever, you'll know that in different languages, um, the conjugation can often get quite complicated. And then, then other languages have very simple conjugation like Chinese. But anyways, the point is that black American English actually has verb tenses that are, are not present in standard American English, yes. which is really interesting. And um, honestly gives it like um, extra ways of talking about actions taking place in time, yeah. which are very useful. Yeah. Um, and Quite cool, actually. Yeah. Um, but some examples of this are um, there's a verb tense called the past pre-recent, um, which is like when you say, I been bought it. Right. Um, and so that's like a way of saying that like that action took place quite far in the past mm-hmm. and it's been completed. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what that means, you know. Um, and so that's like a whole specific way of talking about an action. There's like other um, other examples of of tenses in Black American English that don't necessarily exist um, in Standard English. I done bought it. I did buy it. I do buy it. I be buying it. I'm a buy it. I'm a gonna buy it. And I gonna buy it. So these are all correct conjugations of verbs in. Black American English that all mean specific things. Yeah. Um, there's an example on Wikipedia that I really like that shows how these can work together. So it's like, um, he been done working means he finished work a long time ago. But he done been working means until recently he worked over a long period of time. Right. You know, so those like mean different things and those are correctly conjugated. Yes. And so like for people who are, you know, like native Black American English speakers, this will just be like, just totally natural and like not something that you would ever have to think about or like write down the way that it is like for any native speaker of a language you never think about these things right you just you just intuitively know because you learn them when you're very small you learn them in childhood so you just intuitively know the shades of meaning Mm -hmm. um that exist there that are very unnatural for non-native speakers because they don't know it right and Mm -hmm. so 
um, for non-native, like, Black American English speakers who are hearing stuff like this and trying to just understand it through the lens of their own dialect, to them, it just sounds wrong mm -hmm. because they're like, well, that's not, like, what are you talking about? Why are you adding those words in? Mm -hmm. But it's like, well, those words are there for a reason. They have a specific meaning that yep. you are just not getting because you don't speak the dialect. Yep, they're tense markers. Yeah, and so... That's just like an example, but like, obviously there's tons of it. And again, I will emphasize, you know, if you are not a native black American English speaker and you're like, wow, this sounds interesting. Um, especially if you're an American, I really highly recommend that you go and listen to John McWhorter talking about this yeah. or just do some Googling online because you can find lots of things that are explaining the different, um, the different types of tenses and the, the and different grammatical, grammatical structures of the dialect. Mm -hmm. So it's not slang. It's not a sign of ignorance. It's literally a dialect with its own grammatical rules um, that can be spoken correctly or incorrectly. Another important thing, I think we touched on it a little bit, but I'm just going to reiterate it, is that it can't be conflated with race mm -hmm. because there literally are tons of people in the world who, who are black, who do not speak black American English. And there are people who, because of where they grew up and because the people around them, the people in their families, the people in their communities, speak Black American English, they speak Black American English. Totally. Because human groups are actually not organized naturally based on race. Like, of course, segregation, racial segregation can happen. But in reality, humans are always mixing and mingling and hanging out. And so if you are in a place that is like majority like black American English speakers and you've just been around that and, you, you know, there's black American English speakers in your family and like so on and so forth, chances are you're going to speak black American English. Oh, yeah. Or if you go to a school that's like 80% black kids, like you're, yeah. you're very likely to basically speak black American English as a first language. Yeah. Because you're just constantly around it. Yeah. And so... That is an important point to just keep in mind as, as you're listening to this episode. And then the other thing that I wanted to say about dialects is that dialects naturally spread mm -hmm. and naturally influence one another because language is always evolving and changing and it's always being influenced by other languages that are around it. And so actually English in general is like a really great example of this because English is such a hodgepodge yeah. of different influences, Strongly. right? Yeah. And so like there's many words in English that are like, not English words. Um, oh yeah, we're constantly just like mugging other languages yeah, for just their like vocabulary. Absorbing into English, right? And mm -hmm. so can you give an example of that? Like uh there's so many. Uh pajamas comes from Hindi. Okay. And like there's like French words. Yeah, like like half our vocabulary is French. Yeah. <laughs> like literally, like every fancy word is French. Yeah. So that's just like to, you know, just to understand that this is not an unusual thing, right? Like this is constantly happening. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense. That, like, even though Jay was saying earlier that, like, it's definitely, like, cringe and racist to, like, try to put on Black American English when you fucking don't speak it and you're just kind of, like, putting on a caricature. Yeah. Um, that's not a cool thing to do. It's disrespectful. And you sound stupid because you actually don't speak it and it's very obvious that yeah. you don't. And it's very obvious that you're not trying to. Like, you're not actually making a sincere, good faith attempt to speak the dialect. You're just putting on, like, a caricature of what you think the dialect is. Exactly. Um, so that's disrespectful. But that's not to say that non-native Black American English speakers will not say anything that comes from Black American English. Because when you are around a dialect 
it's going to start influencing your speech. And so like we were saying, there's definitely people who like just, if you're around it all the time, that's going to be your dialect. But if you are not necessarily around it all the time, but you're around it frequently or it's, you're hearing it frequently for some reason, it's going to influence your language in some way. Totally. And I think that, um, like, um, because America is like the United States is such a cultural, uh, powerhouse you know it's like a huge country very large population very very wealthy and it exports like enormous amounts of its cultural content to the world um there is a very large amount of black american english that gets also exported to the rest of the world right um it is very present in american media and culture yeah um because it is an important dialect spoken by an important percentage of the population yeah um in the u.s and because of that there are features of black american english that are very well known to lots of people. Yeah. Right? Um, I think lots of people don't, like most people couldn't sort of like conjugate verbs properly yeah. um, in black American English, but there are certain exceptions to that. And I think that like, for example, the, the bean thing yeah. is really starting to um, percolate into the wider English speaking world yeah. because it's such a handy Verb tense. Well, that's the thing because it's like in standard dialects of English, there isn't there isn't a verb tense for that. Yeah, and it expresses something specific that you can't say. Mm-hmm. And so, like in the dialect of English that I was raised with, there is no way for me to say I've been doing it. Yeah, you know. Um, but I love to say that because it's like it's like. Like, if I was like, we've been talking about cancel culture. Yeah. That's me saying, like, this has been going on for some time, guys. Yeah. Like, it's not just like I started talking about this yesterday, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. And so, like, that is a way of expressing an idea that, like, is actually very useful um, and, like, succinct and mm-hmm. packs a punch. And so, like, it makes sense that, like, people who who hear that expression regularly, like, in the media and understand what it means might just start incorporating it into their language. And there's also like tons of phrases um, that come out of black American English that just seep into English speakers like vocabulary in the same way like that you were talking about pajamas. Like that's not like a grammatical thing. It's a word, Mm -hmm. but it has spread out because people, I guess were like, Oh, we need a word for this. And that's a word for it, you know? And so it just seeps into the language. And so, you know, in a similar way, like there's all sorts of different um, expressions that come out of black American English that people who don't speak black American English end up speaking. Yes. And for the most part, up until I think pretty recently, um, most of those borrowings have been vocabulary. Yeah. Because uh, Black American English has a very strong tendency to generate vocabulary. Right. This is actually a feature of a lot of sort of like um, subordinate languages or like subordinate dialects where like there's often this thing where like people who speak them are trying to like kind of like keep ahead of the more dominant dialect. Interesting. Uh, Yeah, it is interesting. And it happens like all over the place. Um, But yeah, so like there's a lot of slang that comes out of the US. Yeah. um, And particularly from that ethnic group. Yeah. And... I'm just going to talk about the concept of the ethnic group thing for a second because I think it's interesting. And I wanted to jump in earlier when you were pointing out that this is not a racial um, language, if there is such a thing, you know, and it's, it's much easier to see this when you are not in the U S right. I think when you're in the Uh, U S it's like, it's difficult to notice this because in the U S these, like these groups, white and black are treated as these racial groups. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but when you are on the other side of the border or 
across the ocean and you're lo- looking at this, you're like, those are ethnic groups yeah. within the United States. And you're like, those are have, Americans. Those are Americans. <laughs> those are definitely Americans, first of all. They're American ethnic groups that are correlated with race to a yeah. large degree, yes. right? Because of a history of segregation. Yes. And because of a... And a current reality of segregation in a, a lot of places. Yeah. And a current ongoing reality of like racism. Yeah. Um, and et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of reasons for why it looks the way it does. But in the end, those are American ethnic groups. Yes. And the ethnic group that speaks Black American English, you know, has its own dialect. Yeah. Right? Um, and again, these things are always blurry. So not everyone in that ethnic group is going to speak right. that dialect, right? Yeah. But for a very large percentage of them, they at least um, can speak it. Yeah. You know? Um, but they have to do code switching. Oh, right. Code switching. You know? Yeah. Sorry if I'm jumping all over our uh, our plan, but um, the code switching thing is really interesting because what, what this ends up meaning... Okay, so I'm just going to explain what code switching is real quick. It's like when you speak two different dialects and one of them is the prestige dialect and one yes. of them isn't, um, generally speaking, you are expected to switch to the prestige dialect in certain social situations, right? So people who speak standard American English as their... Um, their main variety of English or only variety of English do not typically have to code switch except to a very, very minor degree. Like if you're talking to like a judge or something, you're going to maybe be more like you formal. know formal, um, but that's very minor. Whereas if you are a native speaker of black American English um, or other like varieties of English in the U S too, like honestly, like sort of like redneck type right. style English is like a similar, similar thing. Right. You have to code switch in a lot of scenarios, yeah. like at work, at school, yeah. Whatever. And so if you're like a, if you're a kid in school and your, your native dialect of English is black American English, you know how to speak it. You're a native speaker of it. Yes. You know, you know how to conjugate the verbs in that language because you have been doing it since you were three. Yes. Um, but when you go to school, they're like, that's wrong. Yeah. And not only is that wrong, but you have to learn this entire other set of ways to conjugate verbs and whatever. Um, and you have to learn about these things that are not present in your dialect, like having to add like the possessive S at the end of words, yeah. which they don't do in black American English. Yeah. Right. And this is why you say like baby mama, because actually it's like babies. Uh, yeah, it's my baby's mama, Yeah, you know? Um, but in black American English, you don't put the S. So it just turns into baby mama. Right. Yeah. Um, and that is like a feature of black American yeah. English, but you have to learn that you have to add this S which yeah. feels very unnatural and yeah. whatever. It might be a bit easier for you than say if you were an immigrant because you have been exposed to standard yeah. American English a lot, but it still means that you have to do this extra labor yeah. of code switching school. And then you graduate from school and you have to do it at work. And if you are in any kind of like formal situation, you have to do it um, because it's expected because that standard variety of English is the prestige dialect. Yeah. And so like, Code switching is basically like, it's kind of like non-reciprocal bilingualism. Exactly. And so basically what it is, is that, you know, people who are code switching are bilingual. They Mm -hmm. speak two dialects Mm -hmm. um, and they're being forced to speak two dialects because if they only speak their own dialect, they're going to experience like material and social sanctions against them Mm -hmm. um, in their day-to-day lives. So they have to code switch. Um, which basically just means that they have to be bilingual and they have to be able to be fluent in the other dialect. Mm-hmm. But and they're punished if they're not. And they're not. Yeah. And and there are plenty of people who like don't. They're not very good at code switching. Yeah. You know, it might be a, a combination of factors about their education and like their circumstances and so on. Um, but they're punished socially for it, for right? Sure. And, and it can also, be very like, difficult to find employment yeah. and like all this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. materially, yeah. in the sense that like employment and stuff like that is more than just social. It's literally like material. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so. Um, 
Yeah, and so, but what's going on here, you know, is that when I say it's non-reciprocal, what it, what that means is that the other dialect is not expected to be bilingual. Exactly. And so, like, the other dialect, the standard American English dialect, gets to continuously think of itself as the correct way of speaking English mm-hmm. and expects everybody else to cater to them and to speak English in the way that they speak English and then can like cast judgment as like, oh, this is a sign of ignorance if the person is speaking in their native dialect. Meanwhile, they themselves are the one who is not bilingual, mm-hmm. right? Like the person who's actually ignorant in that situation, more ignorant of the two, is obviously the one who only speaks one dialect yeah. and is completely unable to switch dialects or to even necessarily fully comprehend the other dialect, exactly. right? And so that is like what's actually going on there with code switching. So basically... This, we're talking about Black American English, but we are actually talking about this as a case study. And so, like, what I mean by that is that we are using this to illustrate different ways of thinking about something. Yes. Right? And so, we, you know, Black American English is, like, a really, like, interesting topic. Um, and we're going to be talking lots about it in this episode. But we're also inviting listeners to use this case study to consider that, like, the same issue can be thought about in very different ways um, and can have very different under, like understandings, approaches, and then also like solutions mm-hmm. that come out of the different ways of thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. And so we often on this podcast talk about identitarianism. Mm-hmm. And if you've never heard us talk about that before, please go back and listen to the episode where we explain what identitarianism is. Mm-hmm. But we dis- we always say that it is distinct from identity politics, yeah. right? And that we don't actually have a problem with identity politics. What we have a problem with is identitarianism. And just to give like a brief explanation of what we mean by that, identity politics is just the understanding that, you know, people's lives are different based on many factors about the ways that humans experience life. And, and, and where they're socially situated. Where they're socially situated and like, like who they are and what they do, um, which is often cultural. Um, And understanding that, understanding those differences, making sure to address those differences, making sure to provide protections for people whose cultural differences are being um, like subjugated. Does that make sense there, that word? Um, No, but I know what you mean. (laughs) Okay, what would you say? Uh, Devalued. Devalued. um, And... Yeah, like socially and materially punished, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so identitarianism is essentialism. It's the idea that um, that like we can reduce everything to these very concrete identities that are never shifting across space and time that are about some kind of essential quality, right? Mm. And if you listen to the recent episode that we did on historical materialism, we kind of unpack our critiques of the concept of race and why we don't think that race is a real concept, it's an invented concept. Mm -hmm. Um, And so this is a really interesting case study to look at what happens when you look at Black American English as a serious social issue that's going on right now, the the devaluement of Black American English, when you look at that from an identitarian perspective versus like an identity politics perspective. Yeah, and also a sort of like, I'm going to say like neoliberal perspective versus like a, I don't know, like a policy-based perspective that actually assumes that you can kind of do anything about anything, you know? Um, And 
Yeah, it's like, I think that from the like race identitarianism point of view, it has become really popular in like lefty world um, to basically have this stance about black American English, which we are subjected to too, even though we're Canadian. Yeah. Um, that like the main thing that, that everyone has to do is make sure that only black people as a race, mm-hmm. not as an ethnic group, as a race, um, are sort of quote unquote allowed to use AAVE. Um, and that other people um, are it, that it, that it's it's very offensive for other people to do it, and this has different um, degrees. I think that like there's so- sometimes you'll come across these like really like wacky lists of words that you're not allowed to use, and it's like cool yeah. or, or whatever, you know. Um, and then other times it'll be like we just don't want you to say like on fleek or something. Yeah. Um, and mostly it's like lists of slang. Yeah. Honestly. Um, so that has become like a really popular way of thinking about Black American English as this sort of like, um, like racially copyrighted uh, set of vocabulary. Yeah, it is the cultural appropriation argument, right? And so you will have people saying like, if you are non-Black, you should not speak any words or phrases that come out of uh, Black American English because it's cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And this doesn't make sense for like a whole bunch of reasons. One of the reasons is, is that say you are a black Canadian who has, who is not actually a member of the black American ethnic group, Mm -hmm. who actually is not a native black American English speaker, Mm -hmm. who has as much exposure to black American English through the media as like any other Canadian. Canadian. (laughs) Um, But in, in this case, using this framework, this person would be allowed to use it and it wouldn't be considered cultural appropriation because they're black. So it's a racial way of thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Even though that person is actually not a member of that culture, they are not a member of the group that speaks black American English. And there has been cases Um, of people who are not black who are literally from communities that all speak black american english and this is their native dialect that's Mm -hmm. really what they fucking that they're not putting it on that's how they speak that's their native dialect there's a bunch of cities in the u.s that are like huge majority black cities yeah and so like black american english is the main dialect and there's many people in those places that speak black american english as their native dialect even though they are not racialized as black and so literally there's been cases of like youtubers and stuff who have been called out and have had like weird cancellation campaigns put against them because they're being accused of cultural appropriation because they are speaking their native dialect but they're not black and i think many people listening to us say this assume that the next thing we're going to say is that means that everybody should be allowed to speak AAVE, you know? Um, but, but this is where we want to step outside of this paradigm of like, should races be allowed to do things, you know? And we want to say, actually, um, we need to be thinking about this in terms of ethnic groups in a particular country, the United States, and that there is like an ethnic group that speaks black American English. And it is a subjugated one that has a, subjugated dialect and if we want to think about um policy that would reverse that situation that that would decolonize honestly that situation yeah um what could we come up with yeah totally and 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 like we're talking we're saying that that group is an identity it's an identity group yeah. Based around the fact that they speak a certain variety of English. Yes. It- there, there are other factors in that identity too, but like there is an identity group that can be defined as first language speakers of black American English. Yeah. 
an identity, like, and then a politics that would apply to that identity group is a form of identity politics. Yes. And so, you know, I think that like when people hear us or other people who critique identitarianism, what they're worried about is that we just aren't going to care about human differences and the fact that there's different cultural groups in the world and the fact that you know, we're just going to expect everybody to live up to like some particular cultural standard that is like, whatever, a white, whatever that means, like, I guess a white American <laughs> standard, probably, right. you know, right. um, but that's not what we're saying at all. And in fact, we're saying that um, we really do believe in protecting like linguistic and cultural diversity mm -hmm. and that that's actually an important goal of any kind of socialism that I want to be a part of. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you think about it this way, when you take black American English seriously as a dialect, if you really believe and understand that that is a dialect and not just a bunch of slang, mm -hmm. then you actually have to accept that it's going to influence other people who are not native speakers of the dialect. Mm -hmm. That is a natural part of the way that language works. There is no language that is protected from that natural drift of dialect. All dialects that are coming into contact with other dialects are going to be influencing each other. Mm. In most cases. Maybe there's like some weird exceptions, but I really don't think that this is... Where there's like extreme relations of domination... It's unlikely that it would go both ways, is what I mean. Right. Okay. Yeah. So people could be protected from having to learn the dialect that is subordinate yeah. to them yeah. in the current cultural context, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. But generally speaking, and I mean, this is why it's kind of an interesting like, example, because even though it is kept in a subordinate position in the United States, it is also being exported globally in a way where people all over the world are have, having exposure to it. Yeah, because it's kind of like a subordinate, um, it's a subordinate dialect of the dominant country. Yes, so it's kind of an unusual example. Yeah. Um, but yes, if your dialect is out there in the world and people are hearing it and engaging with it, it's very likely that it's going to influence the way that they speak. Yeah, and yeah. And I mean, black Americans are a huge ethnic group. Yeah. Like we've talked about this like a bunch on the podcast. We've said this like a million times, but... There's, there's like significantly more black Americans than there are Canadians in general. Yeah. You know, there's like a large ethnic group. They have like a big cultural punch, you know, yeah. they control a large amount of money, um, globally speaking, you yeah. know, there's like, they have like a lot of access to like, um, be, like being able to have media featuring them exported to the world, you know, yeah. not always in like a super like fair way. Like it's, it's all sort of subject to capitalism and yeah. it's very, you know, largely controlled by like wealthy white people. But anyways. Yeah. So what we are suggesting is that instead of taking an identitarian approach where we're just going to get people to like weirdly be hypervigilant about their language and, you know, if you're not black, you shouldn't say these words. Because that framing does literally absolutely nothing for the position that native black American English speakers are in, right? Mm -hmm. All it does is create a weird situation in which like Canadian, like black people are allowed to say that, even though they're not from there, which I'm not saying they shouldn't be allowed to say it, <laughs> right? That's fine. Yeah. Um, hopefully you're saying it correctly. Um, but, you know, English people being like, yeah, that's on point. Whoops, sorry. Um, is not doing anything right. for native black American English speakers and the fact that they are being discriminated against for their language. 
And so what we would like to suggest is that instead of this, we should take a materialist approach that actually values like pluralist societies that include multiple linguistic groups and actually suggest that languages should be protected. Yeah. And I'm just like, I don't know, man. I'm like, if, if you like Americans want to have your like racial reckoning, I'm like, go for it, man. You have to reckon with the fact that there's like a giant ethnic group in your fucking country that speaks like a different fucking dialect of English. And, and what does that mean? So like in, in any like normal fucking country that, that was trying to sort of like reverse like historical discrimination, what you would do is you would make that dialect a fucking national language. You yeah. know, you would give it all sorts of legal protections. You would make sure that it is um, uplifted in various formal ways yes right and that is exactly what we are proposing and yeah. i mean we're not american we're also not black americans but we're just like trying to like get people to think about this and yes. again it's like as a case study because this kind of thing um is it's all over the place you know um but we're like yeah what what happens when you look at this from a policy perspective and you stop looking at it from this sort of like um like timid like limp identitarian yeah can I just say one thing that's kind of like a tangent, but it's related? Tell me. So I think part of what is so confusing about all of this is that in the United States, and you mentioned this a bit, but in the United States, these cultural groupings, these ethnic groupings are so clearly defined along racial lines due to this very intense like history and legacy of racism and segregation mm -hmm. that it is very easy for Americans to literally conflate the two. Yes. To not be able to see the difference between a racial group and an ethnic group, yeah. right? Yeah. It is easier, I think, for us as Canadians to see this because we know black people who are not black Americans. Of course. And so, therefore, we can see that not all black people in the world are black Americans mm -hmm. and they do not share that ethnic and cultural identity, but mm -hmm. they are racialized in the same way, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But because black American culture and like not just black American culture, but American culture and American ideas about race are so exported globally. Super dominant. And because it is such a main way in the nexus or in social justice culture that we think about identity and race it comes out of the United States of America. You know, we have this weird situation in which basically the category of blackness is constantly being conflated with black Americans. Yes. All the time. Yes. And it's like really not actually true that those two things are the same. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that this plays out that I just think is interesting and it's just it's kind of an aside, but I think it's worth mentioning on this episode for people to think about is the capitalization of the word black. Mm. Because I don't capitalize the word black because I don't capitalize racial groups, mm -hmm. right? I don't actually think that a racial group should be capitalized. Um, and racial groups are not usually capitalized mm -hmm. grammatically. Mm -hmm. um, but ethnic groups are, mm -hmm. right? Exactly. So I would say, you know, a white person, small w, but I would say a Swedish person, capital S. Yeah. Right? And so what is going on, in my opinion, with the capital B mm -hmm. is the conflation of the ethnic group. Yes. And the racial group. Yes. Because. Of it, American dominance. In the United States of America, those two things are so thoroughly conflated. Black American, like, Black Americans as, a, as an ethnic group and as a cultural group are conflated with Black people as a racial group. Right. 
right? And we are constantly saying on this podcast that we don't believe that racial groups are real and that they are actually a social construction and that, you know, believing in race is the same thing as racism and we want to actually abolish racial grouping grouping altogether. Mm -hmm. That's what we think. But we are not saying that we want to get rid of the ethnic group, Black Americans, with a capital B. Yeah. And so, like, I actually would capitalize the B if I was talking about Black Americans, meaning the ethnic group that is coming out of the United States. Yeah. But the problem is is that so often when people are talking about that group, they're like kind of just conflating it with black people globally Mm -hmm. um, in a way that is not accurate at all. Or they're just ignoring black people globally. Yeah. And they're just assuming that everything is the U.S. Yeah. Which is what Americans always do. Yeah. So I just think that 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 is a sort of interesting example to, to sort of demonstrate the point that we're talking about here. But yeah, so let's get into it a little bit and talk about if we are, if we're going to take black American English seriously as a dialect. You know, if we're going to value, you know, human diversity and the existence of multiple languages and multiple cultures, which we definitely think that we should do, um, then instead of just telling non-black people to hypervigilantly monitor their own language, perhaps we could do something more concrete and robust. Yeah. And I think that it's, it's difficult for Americans to conceptualize these kinds of policies because they don't exist in America. Like mm. language, language laws like don't exist in America. Yeah. Um, they're very common in the world. Yes. Um, they're very uncommon in the Anglophone world, mm-hmm. except in Canada. Yeah. Um, and really only in Quebec. Um, but there are many places in the world where it's, it's understood on a very like basic level that language is very, very important to people's identity. Um, one of the most fundamental parts of their identity, actually, it really structures who you are, how you think of yourself, who you can interact with, you know, and also how you think of the world, how you think of the world. Like there's, there's all these elements that make language really important to people. Um, and so, you know, in like Belgium or whatever, there's like, well, not whatever, literally Belgium. Um, you know, there are, uh, very particular, um, elements of their governance system that are based around these linguistic communities because part of Belgium speaks French and part of it speaks Dutch. And they, I guess there's like a tiny part that speaks German too. Um, but like, you know, they have like these they have political parties that, ba- that are based on the languages and they have sort of like, like seats that are like set aside for different linguistic communities and like all this kind of shit because it's understood that that is how you make um, a country work that has multiple different like linguistic groups. Yes. In it, you know? And, and like, so... Um, in the United States, in theory, if people wanted to, it would be possible to have linguistic protections for speakers of African-American English, um, black English, black American English, that, uh, validate it, protect the people who speak it, um, formalize it. Yeah. And treat it seriously. Yes. As a serious dialect. Yes. Um, not as this sort of like, yeah, like racialized list of vocabulary words that are sort of like a cultural property, like of a certain group. Yeah. So let's talk about some examples of how this could look. Um, one place where this could play out is in school, mm-hmm. right? So yes. currently the situation is, and like, I really want people to think about this, especially if you are not a native black American English speaker, because this is a fucked up situation. You are in your home, in your community where you're from, you know, you can be speaking a dialect that everybody speaks, that you speak perfectly fluently and perfectly well and perfectly naturally because it's your native dialect. And then you can go to school. And when you speak in that dialect 
or even write in that dialect, you would be graded poorly and you would be told that what you're doing is incorrect. Mm -hmm. And so there's actually no acknowledgement that you are like, it's not that it's incorrect. It's that you're being graded in a dialect that you don't fucking speak. And not only that, but because there is no formal version of your dialect, there is nothing that you could even point to to say that you're doing it correctly. Yes. And so I think that this is sort of like, this is an interesting one because since Black American English has been so devalued for so long and has always been kept to the register of the informal um, as opposed to the formal, um, there really isn't much of an example of what it would look like to have Black American English in a formal register. And so what I mean by that is like, we obviously know that Black American English can be used for conversation, for social contexts, and so on. But like, could you write a paper in um, Black American English, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that because it has been so pushed out of the education system, there hasn't been a lot of examples of people trying to do this, but that doesn't mean that it can't be done. Mm -hmm. It absolutely can be done because it is a dialect that has its own internal grammar. So it's absolutely possible to write in that dialect and it's absolutely possible to write incorrectly or correctly. But because we don't have a lot of examples of people formally writing in that dialect, we don't necessarily have like a, a codified way that that has been like formalized into written language. Right. Um, but that can be done. It can. And like the process of that happening would be through like an education system that actually took this seriously. And there would probably be like a period in which like different written forms were kind of like vying for like dominance, but eventually it would settle into like a formal codified way of writing black American English. Yeah. It also means like, um, kids who are, who are in school and are, you know, growing up and learning how to, how to speak, um, only get taught formally um, standard American English. And they don't get taught their own variety yes. of English. Yes. Right? And that um, that sucks, you know, because actually like kids make mistakes when they're when they're speaking and learning, right? And so what ends up happening is that like when they're making mistakes in black American English, um, the the only people who are like correcting them or like doing any work with them on that are their parents and peers, yes. basically, not teachers. Yeah. But like, why shouldn't they be allowed to have teachers who can correct them if they are conjugating a verb incorrectly in Black American English? Exactly. They should be entitled to that. Totally. They should be entitled to educators who understand their dialect yes. fluently. Yes. And are able to say, actually, in this verb tense, in yeah. this dialect that we both speak, yeah. um, you have to do it this way. Not that way, yeah. because if you do it that way, it's wrong. Rather than saying everything you're saying is wacky and fucked up, and yeah. you have to like do this in this completely other way that no one around you speaks like. Totally. And even though like you're saying that you know what they're being taught in school is the standard American dialect, they're actually like in a certain way not really being taught it. It's being assumed that they have a certain level of proficiency in it that they may not have. Right. Because if they have a peer who grows up speaking at home in standard American English, that kid has a certain level of proficiency that they learned at home, right? And they're entering into it at a level that is then being like improved upon by the schooling system. Mm -hmm. But immediately it puts kids who speak black American English at a disadvantage because they they don't have the fucking um, basic proficiency in it because they don't speak it at home. Mm -hmm. And so when, like, I think that both what you're saying is true, that like they should have teachers who speak black American English and who can you know, help them in their own dialect to improve. And when they are learning standard American English, they should be treated like they're learning a second language 
and they should be given the same kinds of educational tools that people are given when they're learning a second language. And then even more profoundly, and maybe more sort of like um, shockingly to the comfortable speakers of standard American English who are who don't want to be bilingual and don't think they have to be, um, vice versa should be true. Yes. And so like people who speak the standard American dialect at home should also be exposed in a in an educational setting to black American English. Yes, man. That is a fucking language that's spoken in your country. Yeah. So it's like, you know, instead of saying white people can't say on fleek, yeah. we should say uh, white people's children have to learn how to conjugate verbs in black American English. Yes. In the United States. In the U.S. And we're talking about the United States here because yeah. it, in the, it's in the United States where this is... Um, Canadians shouldn't have to learn it. Like, yeah. It's not, I mean, yeah. we could if we're interested, if we're language nerds. Yeah, you know? but I mean, it shouldn't be like a subject in school. Yeah, because we're not Americans. Yeah. But in the United States, which is basically a bilingual or like actually more like trilingual, trilingual country. Yeah. We, you also have to do this with Spanish. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Um, but I mean, sorry, not sorry, but it's also very enriching for you. So yeah. it's good. Yeah. Um, but if there's like a school system that would teach both dialects, where you could have classes in both dialects, then... Everybody could be bilingual and could have a better understanding of the other dialect and the burden would not be put on speakers of black American English to constantly quote code switch, which just means be bilingual. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. everybody would have to be bilingual mm-hmm. or it would be a general social ex- expectation. And then the other piece of this, you know, beyond just like learning languages is that if you are like, if you're not a black American English um, speaker and you're listening to this, like just imagine that you had to go to school and write your history paper in black American English mm-hmm. conjugated correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. How would you do that? Yeah. You have to like look up if you're supposed to do done or been. Yeah. And you're like, I don't fucking know. Right. Yeah. And so like that is the level of barrier that people are facing when they are doing their entire education in a second dialect. Yeah. And Going so like, through your paper and taking out S's. Yeah. Like, because it's not the way that you fucking think. And so this is really important. And I just want to emphasize this because we can have kids who are fucking brilliant, right? Who are really fucking smart, who have a lot to offer the world, who might be fucking geniuses in science or history or anthropology or literature, you know, who have like really important gifts to offer the world, but they are struggling to actually get good grades and to actually be recognized for the gifts that they have because they're constantly being expected to communicate all of their ideas in a second language Mm -hmm. Um, and of course you know it's great to learn a second language but you should not be expected to do everything in your life in a second language when you live in a country that has a huge population that speaks your language like especially if you live in one of these places like baltimore where it's just like everybody's black you know um can we talk about quebec sure yeah okay let's talk about quebec for a second because quebec is um a really good example of a place with like pretty comprehensive language laws. Okay. Sometimes they get very annoying and there are elements of like the current slate of language laws that I find like go too far, you Mm -hmm. know, in general though, I'm very, very supportive of the language laws in Quebec. The language laws in Quebec, their main purpose is to make it so that a Francophone Quebecer someone who speaks French and is from Quebec, which is the French-speaking part of Canada. And it's their first language. And it's their first language. um, Can go through their whole life, um, education, employment, government services, um, you know, interacting with companies, like whatever, everything, 
in their first language. Yes. And that was an, a really important um, thing for Quebecois nationalists in like the 60s and 70s um, because prior to that, generally speaking, in Quebec, French speakers, who were the majority, had to do a lot of that shit in English yeah. because English was the language that everything operated in. It was the language of power um, because Canada was part of the British Empire and Quebec was taken over by the British Empire. Right? Yeah. And so French was this subjugated language in Canada um, that was basically only spoken by um, working class people with like a tiny minority of like, there was like some rich francophones. But mostly it's like, it was like a very, it was like a working class language in uh, an area that was dominated by speakers of another language, right? And then there was this, this process called the Quiet Revolution. And um, through that process, like nationalist parties came to power, Quebecois nationalists, French speaking people, um, who were like, we're going to pass all these laws to make it so that like our kids no longer have to go through life in a fucking second language yes. that isn't theirs, you know? Um, in, in the place where they live, where they're from, like the cities that they grew up in, like they shouldn't have to do everything in another language. And so the upshot of that is that now, um, if you go to an English speaking university in Quebec, you're legally entitled to hand in your papers in French. Yeah. You can do that if you want. And the university has to find somebody who speaks French well enough to grade your paper and who understands the topic well enough to grade your paper, um, to grade your pa fucking paper for you. Yeah. They have to do it and they do do it. And so there's, there's people like a lot of people actually who go to school at McGill or Concordia, but they hand in all their papers in French Yeah, because French is their first language. Yeah. They write better in French. And there's absolutely no fucking reason why this could not be the case in the United States with black American English. Yeah. So like if you are in one of these places, I mean, it could be fucking federal, but I think like, it should be federal. But if you, but if, if it wasn't, you could say that if you're in one of these places, one of these States with like a super high black population or a city that's like majority black or whatever, you could have like a program where, yeah, all these universities have to accept papers that have um, black American English grammar. Yeah. Because it's not fair because it's like, you know, learning a second language is hard and people have different levels of capacity for that, you know? And so a person can be really fucking smart. Like I obviously living in Quebec, I know tons of bilingual people and they're always like, Oh, I'm smarter in my first language. You know, yeah. like people just sound smarter in their first language because it's so much more natural to them. And yeah, you can be, totally. you can be like totally fluent in a second language and still not be like as good mm -hmm. as your first language. You're mm -hmm. just going to feel better in your first language. You're going to be smarter in your first language. So it's really not fair to make people do everything in their life, you know, that is formal or professional, you know, in a second language. It's obviously going to erode their capacities um and then it's going to do other things like it's going to affect people's self-esteem their self-worth because they're constantly being treated like they're not smart and like they're like they're not capable when they actually are you mm -hmm. know totally so it's really fucking important um and i think that there's a lot of like really cool potential that could come out of that because currently it's like the united states is like in fucking denial about the reality that there's another dialect of English there. Yeah, with like 40 million speakers. Yeah, and that, you know, it's like... Or more even. Yeah, it's like currently like repressing that dialect and not letting it naturally flourish. And if you actually like protected that dialect and you let it flourish, you know, the kinds of like ideas, writing, you know, politics science, everything that could come out of that would be incredible, you yeah, know? Yeah, totally. Um, and students who just struggle with a second language would not be punished for that, and they would still be able to fucking excel in whatever they excel in in their first language. Mm -hmm. so, and people get so fucking mad about language laws in Quebec, man, but, like, honestly, like, 
whatever. Yeah. Like I said, there's, there's certain ones that are like really annoying, especially right now. They like pass some that are like really dumb, but like in general, it's like, you know, imagine if in the United States you have to go to court because you, whatever you you arrested, you have to go to court. Right. Um, and you're trying to like explain something. The lawyer's asking you questions and you like look around you and you're like, I don't think any of these fucking people speak the dialect that I speak, you know? And so you're trying to code switch and you're like trying to like sound like formal and stuff, but like you can tell that it's not coming off really well and like whatever people are looking at you like, you know, and like, what if you had a legally entitled right to speak in your dialect and have a fucking interpreter, yeah. you know, like not to say that you're like too dumb to understand like standard English, you know, no. but it's more that like you, you want, um, a jury, you, you, you want to make sure that a jury is understanding everything you're saying accurately, Yeah, accurately, you know, that they understand the way you conjugated that verb, A hundred percent. that you've been doing it, not yeah. that you had done it. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, um, it's very important. It is very important, man. And like, you know, maybe there's like slang terms that you're using because those are, um, the, that that's the that's the regular way that you would refer to something you know yeah and like people might not even understand what you're talking about etc yeah like okay so yeah we were like so let's talk about this about the law because this is another area in which language protection is really important so yeah as jay is saying like you know if you're in a legal context this is this is a context in which the consequences of your speech being understood could be of incredible importance Mm -hmm. it could literally have the outcome of whether or not you spend a great deal of time in jail you know um it's very very fucking important that people understand what you're saying in a courtroom um there's also the issue that because black american english is so devalued people through racism assume that speaking black american english is a sign of being uneducated or like other racist stereotypes you know um and so if a jury is listening to a speaker who is speaking black American English and they have all of these racist associations with that and they don't take it seriously as just a different dialect, then they are actually more likely to see this person as guilty without actually listening to what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, which is, I think of a major importance in the United States where there's so much racist policing going on. Right. And so, you know, you should definitely have the right to a lawyer that speaks your dialect fluently, preferably a lawyer who that's their first, (laughs) Um, there should be fucking like subsidized programs in law school to create an influx of lawyers whose first language is black American English. Mm -hmm. There should literally be subsidized programs in which black American English speakers who are interested in going into law have like extra subsidies and extra encouragement to do that because there is a shortage of fucking lawyers who speak black American English Mm -hmm. and it should be a right, a absolutely like, irrevocable rights to have a lawyer who speaks your dialect Mm -hmm. and so and have the law translated into black american english if necessary (laughs) yes totally you know um and so yeah you you should be able to have a jury like if a jury is made up of your peers but none of your so-called peers speak your dialect are those your peers yeah um and and like at the very least you should have a translator that can very clearly explain the nuances of your speech if there's members of the jury who don't speak your dialect right Mm -hmm. um so these types of legal protections are very, very fucking important. Um, another area where I think that this like plays out majorly in the United States is in job protection. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, another area where code switching happens is in employment, Mm -hmm. right? So people feel like they, they can't speak, um, their dialect at work or in a job interview because they're either going to get, you know, not hired or they're going to get fired for speaking like unprofessionally at work. They're not speaking unprofessionally. They're speaking a different dialect, Mm -hmm. a dialect 
you know, which many of their coworkers probably speak and many of the customers coming into the store probably speak. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, they're just being expected to speak this other dialect, yep. right? Whereas, you know, like in Quebec, in most contexts, um, you have the legally protected right to, to work in French. Yeah, totally. And you should. And so, um, you know, there should be laws passed in which it is not legal to fire someone or refuse to employ someone based on this and that people are completely allowed, they can't be reprimanded at work for speaking in black American English. Yeah. Um, and if they do, like the employer should get in trouble. Yeah. And there's like a whole process in, under which you can report your employer for discriminating against you and not allowing you to speak your dialect at work. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then um, another is just, and Jay talked about this a bit in the French context in Quebec, but public services. Mm -hmm. So all public services, I mean, I guess the United States doesn't have a lot of public services, um, <laughs> unfortunately. But all public services, you know, from going to the library to, I mean, you know, healthcare should obviously be a public service, but going to the hospital um, to, um, I don't know. Like the DMV, like. What's the DMV? Where you get your license in the U.S. Okay. So it's like where you get your driver's license. Yeah. yeah just like any kind of bureaucratic public service thing that you got to go do. Um to live your basic life you should be able to speak to workers they should have lots of workers there they probably do have fucking lots of workers there who speak black american english yeah realistically they do yeah but like totally. they those workers should be allowed to speak in black american english it's so fucking absurd because and they should be given a fucking raise if they're bilingual yeah exactly because it's <laughs> good to be bilingual at work yeah. and it's like you know how absurd is it to have um a like a, a person who's like seeking services who is a like native black American English speaker speaking to a worker who's a native black American speaker, but the worker is not supposed to talk in black American English lest they get in trouble from their employer, mm -hmm. you know? So it's just like creating more confusion and less comprehension all around. Totally. And realistically, I'm sure that lots of the time they just both, they, just go they both it. code switch, right? Yeah. Like, um, but what if you get a worker who doesn't speak your dialect? Yeah. Then only one of them has to code switch. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Um, and yeah, what, what we should be doing, like well, what we, what Americans should be trying to do over the long term is to make it so that everyone is capable of code switching between the two dialects. Yeah. Or at the very least comprehending because it's like, yeah. especially with, I mean, in, in, you know, Quebec is a great example. At least Montreal is like a very bilingual city, you know, and you will literally hear people talking and like one person is speaking French and the other person's responding in English mm -hmm. or they're or yeah, having a whole conversation, whole, like having a, a whole conversation yeah, yeah. because like they're both good at like understanding but they can't necessarily speak it that well, mm -hmm. which would also be fine. Or they're just better at speaking yeah. their first language. Exactly. Just like, yeah, it's, it's really true that like, like I sound so much smarter in English than yeah. I do in French, even though I'm fluent in French. Yeah, and you can like understand French. Mm -hmm. So like, I really think that like the goal in the United States should be to have a, like, I mean, in this episode we're saying bilingual because we're talking about black American English and the yeah. standard American English. Like bilectical. But maybe, um, you know, you could sh you guys could also consider Spanish there, but um, you know at least a bilingual country where people are able to fluently understand the other dialect, even if it's not their totally. first dialect. Totally. You, know? you know what? Americans love American stuff. Yeah, this and is American stuff. This is American stuff, man. Put some like American flags on it, <laughs> like small American flags for some. Yeah. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, I really BLM flags for others, yeah. and then just roll with it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, that's our language proposal for the it's United a, States. Yeah, language explaining the Americans. Yeah, but I think that it's, like, uh, really interesting to think about. And so, yeah, Jay talked a little bit about um, French in Quebec. 
I'm like a, I am not bilingual, you know, I keep trying and failing to learn French, but like living in, in Quebec as an English speaker, like I can get away with it mainly because I'm self-employed and I live in like neighborhoods that are like pretty bilingual and like most people can switch to English. Um, but there's like many, many moments of frustration that I experience in a day-to-day basis from living in a place that does not cater to me, you mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. And I think that like English speakers, and in this case, I mean English speakers who are speaking dominant dialects, um, we're so used to having everything catered to us all the time, you know? We're so used to never having to struggle or to have that experience of being like, fuck, I don't understand what's going on. I have to like adapt to this situation. Um, it's this major entitlement um, of the Anglosphere, you know? Um, and so I think that it is very frustrating to be in a situation where you suddenly are on the other side of it and you're the one who is expected to learn and to accommodate instead of always having everything accommodating to you. But it's also an experience of growth. It's an experience of humility. And it's an, it's an experience of realizing that you're not the most important fucking person in the world and that your culture is not a superior culture. Your language is not a superior language. We live in a pluralistic world with multiple cultures, multiple languages. Um, and because we are all interacting with each other, there's going to be situations in which you are the one who is less proficient. You are the one who doesn't understand. And that should be a humbling um, and, you know, hopefully inspiring um, experience in which you can fucking try to learn something. Yeah, man. And like, honestly, like I, I would love to see the day when like little kids in American schools are like, they're like, where are you? And the teacher's like, no, remove the copula. And they're like, where are you? And the teacher's like, no, what do we put after you in that sentence? And like, where are you at? Good. Very good. You know? (laughs) Yes, exactly. You know, a hundred percent. Um, yeah. And so I think like language protection, um, is a very important political project. Um, and obviously this is, we're talking about an American context, but we can also talk about this, um, you know, also within the United States and elsewhere, not just talking about black American English. You know, we've mentioned Spanish a couple of times. Mm-hmm. It's like absolutely absurd that there aren't language protections for Spanish in the United States. Yeah. It's like new Mexico. Yeah. Exactly. That's just Mexico. Yeah. So there's like tons and tons of people who speak Spanish who also should have the same types of legal protections that we're talking about here. Yeah. Um, that would be fucking cool mm-hmm. if the United States could recognize itself as a country with three like major language groups, you it know, does. that is um, what it is. Yeah. But they can't recognize themselves right now, but that is what it is. Yeah. Um, and then also Jay and I have talked about this a bunch in terms of indigenous language revival and indigenous language protection. Yeah. Um, and it's a little bit different and we're not going to get into it too much in this episode um, could be a whole episode. It's a little bit different in these cases because indigenous languages, um, are often like smaller in terms of their speaking populations. Mm -hmm. It's not like the whole fucking country, the way that it is with black American English. Um, and they have been so, so thoroughly discriminated against that many of them are like on the verge of like not having any speakers anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's why language revival is so fucking important. Um, but Like, I guess I'll tie this in with the indigenous language topic, but I think it's also relevant to everything else we've been saying. Like, the cultural appropriation model, right? Mm -hmm. It does this thing where it acts as if, like, language belongs to this certain group and that if you learn it, you're... You're, You're like, taking something. You're taking something. Yeah. Guess what, guys? Language is for communicating. Mm -hmm. In order to communicate, both people have to speak the language, Mm -hmm. right? And nobody wants to just communicate with the in-group. Like, the point of language is to speak to people, right? And so if you are... If you speak English, you know, like a standard dialect of English, you get to live your life with, like, the fucking language that got randomly selected through history to be the language that you can pretty much go throughout the world and just speak. And like, in a lot of cases you're going to be okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, most people don't have that. 
And if you are in a language that is very fucking marginalized, you can't speak to very many people in your language. And that sucks. And it's cool that like, you know, you can speak to a few other people in your language, but it would be much better if you could speak to more people. And so I think that like language protection should be about encouraging like multi, like lingual communication. And actually, I think in another episode, I mentioned that movie, um, Tomorrow Ever After. Mm. I did. I think it was in the last episode. Mm-hmm. But basically, this this girl from like a utopian future, and and she just starts. She's in like the year twenty fifteen or something, and she starts talking to the cab driver in his language. I can't remember what language it is, but she's totally fluent. And then like the guy's like, "Oh wow, you speak that language?" And she's like, "Yeah, I speak like not that many languages, like thirty six or something, right?" Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and like the joke is, is that like in the future, people are super fucking multilingual, and like that would be fucking cool if we spoke lots of different languages. Yeah, totally. At the very least, in in the case of indigenous languages, at the very least, um, I think that people should have some familiarity with the languages that are spoken around them by indigenous nations, you know? Mm -hmm. And, like, it's honestly, like, very difficult to learn a whole new language, especially as an adult. Um, and also it's, it's hard to grasp onto a language that you learn as a kid if there's not very many people to speak it with. But, um, that being said, like, I think that there's like two main goals that would be really cool with indigenous languages. Like one is to, yeah, just inculcate some familiarity in the, in the, the mainstream population, you know, so that people can, um, recognize some words in that language, can like pronounce them properly. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like really funny when people like, yeah, do yeah. land acknowledgements and then totally butcher the, yeah, yeah, exactly. Name. But be, being able to know like, yeah, like, um, you know, how the, how the consonants are supposed to sound yeah. in, in that language and, and so on. Um, New Zealand is like a pretty good example of this. A lot of uh, non-Maori New Zealanders like know a pretty big list of Maori words right. and like use them in everyday conversation right. and stuff. Um, and whatever, I'm sure there's plenty of more work to be done there. But New Zealand seems to be on on the cutting edge of sort of like taking a, like a settler colony, taking an indigenous language and sort of like elevating it right. to a real like um, equal language yeah. in, in society, you know? Um and yeah, in, in a North American context, that would be like quite difficult because there are hundreds of these languages and the, the populations are very small um, in most cases. But that doesn't mean that, especially in the areas like surrounding yeah. that nation, that it couldn't be like much more widespread to understand like elements of that language. And this is the second element um, to, I, I believe that it should be made a uh, unalienable right um, to receive government services yes in your first language if you are a or or like you know whatever in your indigenous language if it is an indigenous language that is spoken by like a reasonable number of people um you you should be able to receive services in that language and if that's expensive and difficult and whatever i don't fucking care yeah the it's the literally like the least that the the state can do to provide services in that language or at least try right and it's like just like in quebec you know um actually like throughout canada um federally you can always, in theory, you can always receive services in French or English, yeah. federal services. Yeah. Um, it's like a guaranteed right, you yeah. know? But I'm like, why can't you receive them in fucking Inuktitut? Yeah, totally. Like, you absolutely should be able to, totally. you know? Um, and, like, not only would that um, provide, like, a, a a degree of, like, dignity to people that is, like, really lacking when you have to do everything in your second or third language yeah. in your own fucking country that yeah. you're, like, literally from and all of your ancestors are yeah. from, you know? Um uh, but also, it you know, this is like a secondary benefit, I guess, but it would provide employment. It's totally. so like a lot of people 
who like would have that qualification of speaking that language. Totally. You know what I mean? Um, but also there's like this thing about indigenous languages. Sorry, I'm, I'm on a bit of a tear. That's fine. Um, there's this thing about indigenous languages where like, okay, so I was talking to, man. Okay. I was talking to a cop recently um, and I'm not going to like get into too much details about it, but I was talking to a cop about the possibility of being able to do um, police reports in uh, an indigenous language. And I was like, if an indigenous person is like assaulted and wants to make a report in Inuktitut, like, are they, is the police in Montreal able to do that? And he was basically, um, I don't know. It's complicated, like sort of, and he like kind of wouldn't give me a straight answer. Basically the answer is yes, but it's like really expensive because they have to hire like a private, you know, um, company. And, but he was, he was being like, well, it's really hard to find, you know, Inuit who, uh, are qualified to do that and like want to work with us and whatever. And, you know, it's true. It's like a small population, right? So it's like not easy to find, um, Inuit who necessarily would want to do that job or are available to do it, whatever. But I was like, the thing that everyone seems to fucking miss is that you don't have to be Inuit to speak Inuktitut, yes. right? Like, uh, people other than people within that small, tiny, like, ethnic group um, are able to learn languages. It's very hard. Yeah. It's very difficult to learn it to a natural level. But people do do it yeah. all the time, yes. you know? And especially, like, if you're in university or something doing it, like, you definitely can do it. Like, yeah. it, you just have to take, like, intensive language courses, yes. you know? And I was like, why don't, like... You know, so I was thinking about this policy that exists in lots of places. Like, for example, um, in Quebec, they'll do this thing where, like, if you um, if you're training in like a medical profession, um, oftentimes they'll be like, "We'll pay you for your internships um, that you do during your training, but you get the money after you work in Quebec in French for two years or something like that." Right. You know, so it's kind of like. You don't have to do it, like, but you'd be like leaving a bunch of money on the table, right? Right, and I think that we could do similar things where we're like, if you learn in Nuktitut in university, like, we'll pay for your whole fucking thing, totally, and um, we'll give you a big bonus or whatever if you promise to work for, you know, the the court system translating um, for Nuktitut speakers or whatever for two years, you totally, know? and like you could create a pool of people who speak these indigenous languages fluently, yeah, um, and thereby like create a scenario where indigenous people can access services in their own fucking country, in their own fucking language. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the end of my rant. Yeah. And I think that like, you know, this completely goes, it flies in the face of the cultural appropriation argument, right? Because the cultural appropriation argument is always trying to like basically restrict access to things like language um, because it belongs to the group who speaks it like indigenously or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but that's not how language works. And there was actually a fucking... There was actually like a fucking thing that happened on the internet a while back where people started to try to say that learning ASL, if you're not deaf, is cultural appropriation. Oh God, and man. deaf people were like, can you please shut the <laughs> fuck up? Please. Because they were like, oh my God. You know, because like deaf people are in this situation where they're like a minority language and the vast majority of people who are not deaf do not speak ASL or any yeah. other sign language, yeah. you know? And so people who are deaf are in this position where they literally can't communicate with the vast majority of people around them in language and it fucking sucks. Like mm -hmm. they can do like some written stuff, like they might speak a second language like in a written way, but that's not their first language. They communicate better in ASL and they don't want to just write on a napkin. They'd love to be able to talk to you, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there have been some moves towards getting like you know encouraging non-deaf people to learn asl mm -hmm. 
which is fucking great because then you can get to know people in your community who otherwise you couldn't get to know. And it also like highly opens up and expands the number of people that deaf people can be in fucking relationship with. And creates a pool of interpreters yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. It's great. And so I feel like it's the same with everything else. It's like, you know, if we want to protect minority languages and we want services to exist in minority languages and we want speakers of minority languages to be part of communities and to have access to a wide array of relationships, you know, then we really need to encourage people to speak minority languages. And and that should be encouraged, not discouraged, and not socially punished. Yeah, and like maybe it should be enforced. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and it's like yeah, like I don't know. This I guess we're gonna end with this, but it's kind of like the difference between like scolding versus policy, you yeah. know. And like we're so stuck in this world where we're just like we are never going to be able to take any sort of power, so we're just gonna ignore policy completely and just focus on scolding people. Yeah. And so like our entire focus around this type of thing is usually just being like, you can't say this, you can't say that, instead of being like, what could we do, like policy-wise, yeah. to really reverse this situation of like having like an entire ethnic group in one of the most powerful countries in the world be like totally subordinated like yeah. that, you know? Yeah. yeah, and I think that like, you know, this is such an example of like, neoliberalism and also like capitalist realism this kind of idea that like we can't fucking imagine any real concrete pervasive material changes and so we become hyper obsessed with like personal choice yeah. as politics yeah. you know yeah. and so you know if you are experiencing massive discrimination you know at all levels of society based on your fucking language and then all you're being given in response to that is here's a list of words that people who aren't black aren't allowed to say i'm like what the fuck does that do for people yeah, dude, it like, does nothing no it does nothing and in fact it kind of has the opposite effect of what we want because it makes people who are not like um black american english speakers act weirder and be more anxious about learning something that they should learn it's also just being like hey we're not going to give you anything material but you can have this like scrap yeah which is just that like you get to scold people yeah and they may or may not have listen to listen to you, to you. you yeah, know what exactly. i mean it's just like what the fuck man it's yeah. like that's not anything yeah like we need to be like thinking much bigger yeah. than, than nonsense like this and know? i think like i just want to say a little about the cultural appropriation thing because i mean where it comes out of is this fear that people are just gonna like take something from a culture and then leave the the native people of that culture behind, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And that's a very legitimate fear. And there's like examples of that happening of people just sort of taking something and running away with it, right? And we're definitely not um, advocating for that. But what we are advocating for is like pluralist societies of mutual respect in which cultural competency is like rewarded, you know? Um, and I think that it is, you know, when we were in the United States doing the tour, because mm -hmm. once again, we are not fucking Americans. Um, and the United States is a different cultural context for us, you know? Mm -hmm. And when we were on tour, like we were really struck by the amount of segregation, racial segregation in, the, in the United States. It's weird. Like I'm from Toronto and Toronto is like a really fucking multicultural city. It is not a racially segregated city, mm -hmm. you know? And like, I, you know, was noticing that Americans were just talking about racial segregation as kind of like a given. And there was like an assumption that it's kind of like that elsewhere too. And mm -hmm. it's not like that everywhere. Yeah. It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. And, you know, there's like, I could see the people really grappling, white people really grappling with the fact that they do not like the fact that their cities and their communities are so racially segregated, but like not really knowing what to do about it, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. And one of the answers that is sort of given by social justice culture is, you know, you should feel really bad about it. Yeah. You should feel really, really guilty. And then you should just sort of sit there in your guilt and shame. And that's somehow going to do something. It's not going to fucking do anything. But do you know what might help with, um, changing the circumstance of 
segregation? Bilingualism. Yeah, dude. Because if you take culture seriously, like if you take multiculturalism in the true sense of the word seriously, and you recognize that you live, it's it's like a racial divide, but it's also a fucking cultural divide. You don't fucking speak their language. You don't if you don't speak somebody's language and you treat their language as like subordinate to your own, maybe they're not gonna wanna hang out with you. I don't know. Uh, yeah. And maybe you like will not understand (laughs) a lot of things about them. You know what I mean? That are, yeah, it's, it's, it's so annoying. And yeah, people were just sort of being like, oh yes, well this, this, it's very like white here and it's very segregated. And like, where are all the Latinx people? And I'm like, do you fucking speak Spanish? Yeah. Like, I don't know. Maybe you should. Maybe (laughs) Maybe that would help. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, So this was just a little, uh, a little dive into the topic of black American English, but I hope that it was like an illustrative example of how, you know, we can take up issues of identity from a materialist, like pluralistic and like policy oriented. Yeah, policy oriented and like like perspective. And also that we really should be valuing cultural difference, linguistic difference. It enriches us all. I think it's also pushing back against pessimism. Yeah. Um, and like we talk about Afro pessimism a couple times yeah. on this podcast, but it's like there's a sort of like um blank pessimism like that that has been like really like um, prevalent yeah. in the past like little while on the left, I think, which is just this idea that things like can't really get better in yeah. terms of, in terms of like ways in which people experience oppression or are subordinated in various ways, you know, and that we just kind of have to accept it and then like um, scold people and make them feel bad. And yeah. like, that's the kind of the entire goal of politics, but it's like, no, actually like I also, I think decolonization is an amazing idea. I just don't think that it can be accomplished by sort of like being mad at people on the internet. Yeah. You know, I think it's going to take a bunch of policy or feeling really bad. Yeah. And I also think that like, um, you know, what we're saying about all this stuff, like maybe it seems really out of reach. Like people, I, cause I think we're so used to, to believing that like, it's not possible, you know, because mm-hmm. we haven't seen a lot of like really major changes. Like things have sucked for a long time. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so people are kind of like, is that even possible? Like, could we have these types of protections? Like, but the thing is, is that I'm like, look, there's a huge population that this is their first language, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then there's probably lots of other people who would be in solidarity with that cause, you know? Um, and I think that if that was like a political demand, like honestly, everybody rallied around the political demand of abolish the police Mm -hmm. when there was no clear like idea of how that would work, Mm -hmm. you know? And so because it was such a sort of far-fetched like rhetorical demand without much backing in terms of like what that would actually look like, Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what are you planning on doing with that? Mm -hmm. But this is a very material, concrete demand. Yeah. Being like, these are policies that we want to see put in place that are about language protection. There's other places in the world where this is done. Totally. Like, this is how it would look. We're making demands about this and mm-hmm. we're going to create a political movement around it. Um, that kind of, that, that, could, that could happen. Like, it could actually happen in the real world where this, like, these changes, these policies were actually implemented. And if that happened, the material impact on the lives of people who speak Black American English it would be huge Mm -hmm. because, you know, when people talk about like racism, they talk about it in this incredibly vague way where Mm -hmm. they're not actually talking about how racism works or the the way that it plays out. Right. Totally. And this like language discrimination is a major way that racism plays out in the United States, Mm -hmm. totally discriminating against a linguistic group, you know, and conflating that with race and like discriminating against the linguistic group in a racialized way, which is what's happening, Mm -hmm. you know, is a way in which you keep that group always at a disadvantage, 
right? Mm -hmm. And if that disadvantage was removed, it would have huge material impacts for people in their lives in terms of like what they were able to do for employment, like what they were able to do for education, their sense of like dignity and worth and like community, their, their totally, sense of value, man. you know? Totally. And it's like, what is the goal of decolonization? It is to force the state to stop treating one segment of the population as, as, as though they should have different political rights than the other segment of the fucking yeah. population. You know, like that's, that's what it fucking means, man. Like to take control away from the colonial group yeah. and make it be like evenly and democratically spread out yeah you know so yeah i think it could be really fucking cool so if you're an american and you're listening to this i hope you uh talk to your friends about it <laughs> <laughs> all right this has been fucking canceled see you next time <laughs>